starts the one. To those of you who don't know me, my name is Nicholas Bejarano. I'm a Colombian trumpet player currently based in Los Angeles. For over a decade, I have floated around South America, North America, and Europe, pursuing a life in the arts, and during this time, I've been fortunate enough to have met and been influenced by many people in my field that are truly innovators and deep thinkers. Those of you who know me are well aware of my skepticism for the establishment groupthink that has been largely responsible for the decay of high culture and the birth of the promotion of mediocrity under the guise of high execution. But often, these grievances cannot be aired for fear of losing one's status in the art scene. But now, the coronavirus has leveled the scales of power to a degree I have never seen in my lifetime. And like the patient trout, it is time to strike. What the future holds is uncertain. But what is clear to me is that the 21st century has arrived, and it is time to think ahead instead of rebuilding the models that have failed us. I have always been intrigued by the idea of the art salon a space where interesting people can meet to imbibe, discuss, and challenge one another in the interest of advancing the cultural activities of humanity seems to me as relevant now as when wealthy ladies took them on as antidotes to their domestic dread. My mentors instilled in me a deep understanding that the most important moments in artistic careers didn't happen on stage, but in moments of deep discussion after gigs, recitals, and concerts, in the corners of restaurants and cheap bars. After the gig, as alcohol flows and inhibitions lower, people's true interests are revealed, projects forged, and opinions are voiced more openly than they are in professional settings. I have gone out of my way to have these experiences throughout my career and have forged amazing friendships with people who inspire me, challenge me, and ultimately force me to constantly identify the true meaning of the word artist, in the process making me a better artist as I sharpen my thinking. The Art Salon is a space where artists will be invited to air out their thoughts, voice their opinions, and challenge the trends of our community. I am happy to be able to continue to have the discussions I have for so long enjoyed with my fellow artists, and I'm delighted to invite you to enjoy them too. Trust me when I say it is much better to be one of the people on the other side of the table than the providential fly on the wall. I'm opening this space in the hopes that more people will engage in deep thinking, theoretical conversation, and dangerous ideas in the safety of this virtual tea room. I hope it will help preserve the voices in our industry that, although often the most dangerous and prescient, are typically the most silenced. The conversations are not short, but I hope you will invite me and my guests to your breakfast table, lunch hour, afternoon tea, dinner, or nightcap, and share with us these moments that will undoubtedly challenge preconceptions and lazy thought. Follow The Art Salon on Instagram at The Art Salon and stay up to date with upcoming episodes and more. Today, July 14, 2020, marks two years of the passing of Thomas Stevens. I am choosing this date to launch this podcast and dedicate any worthwhile results here on out to the legacy of the most important thinker of the brass world during the 20th century. His vigilance and academic tenacity are missed dearly. Today's guest is Bob Malone. We often talk in glowing terms about the tremendous influence of often minor artists, whether we are busy glorifying important practitioners that have chosen to follow the orchestral path or high-level executioners. We often ignore the creative artists in our field, the ones worthy of the title of artists. For those of you who have been living under a rock, Bob Malone is the head of the Yamaha Atelier in Los Angeles and the designer who has spearheaded many of the company's most successful instruments. He is a true innovator and has significantly impacted the music scene by providing us all with tools that make our artistic lives tolerable. 
Like so many of my most valued mentors, I met Bob Malone at Chosen Vale in the summer of 2011. Expecting to meet an engineer repairman, I instead found a sensitive man enveloped in the practice of enjoying life. With his smile and a camera, this genius blended into the background of Chosen Vale, capturing in silence the personalities that have graced the Enfield Shaker Museum over the years. It quickly became apparent to me that Bob had the respect of every member in the faculty, particularly Thomas Stevens. And when Tom spoke, I listened. I have since been lucky enough to form a friendship of sorts with Bob that is deeply significant to me. We share passion for coffee, cars, and music, as well as relationships with many artists we both deeply admire and love. He is perhaps one of the closest links to Thomas Stevens I have, and have found in him an infinitely generous man, a brilliant artist, and a human being of spectacular quality, the likes of which is hard to come by and often underappreciated. I invited Bob to join me to talk a little about his unique relationship to Thomas Stevens, the path that led him from pursuing a career in the performing arts, his approach towards design from artistry, his many years with Yamaha, and the unique historic moment that led him to briefly host two of the most important trumpet players of all time under one roof during a strange number of months in Los Angeles. There's a little bit of everything in this one, even some design history for the gearheads. Thomas Stevens has now been gone for two years. The hole he left in the trumpet world will not likely be filled, and as Bob will put it, it is now in the hands of those who knew him and believed in his project to continue to protect his legacy of excellence for the future. In the interest of helping people remember the man and to showcase just one of the many people touched by his, this incredible personality, I am happy to welcome Bob Malone, director of the Los Angeles Yamaha Atelier to the Art Salon. I think, you know, everyone knows who you are a little bit, you know, <laughs> uh, and obviously you've had an incredible impact, particularly in the night, last like 20 years in the trumpet scene. And I think everyone and their mother is flocking to your instruments around the world. I I'm always curious because I don't think a lot of people know about how you are here at USC and you're studying with Tom and all of that stuff and, and, and your background as a player. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. Well, like, uh, like many professional musicians, especially coming from America, my entry into music was a school music program. And so common in America, and this was a case in my school district, you know, kind of beginning band instrument uh, students started in the fifth grade. And, um, and so they, they recruit, you know, try to build interests. And then they have a big, there's a big night when all the parents and the kids come into a room. In this case, I think it was, um, it was a school lunchroom. And uh, one of the, the big music stores uh, came and they brought lots of instruments of, of all types. And this was, I uh, should say, this was out in the middle of the desert where I grew up. Uh, I was born in Ridgecrest, California, uh, which is about maybe 150 miles or so northeast of Los Angeles. And there was a big Navy base out there called China Lake. My, my father worked for the Navy. Uh, for a short time, he was active duty. But right out of University of Washington as a young electrical engineer, uh, he was recruited to come to China Lake. And we lived on the base and moved away for three years uh, very early on. This was back in the Korean War. Uh, my father thought he was probably going to get drafted, so he got proactive and 
applied for Officers Candidate School and was accepted and then became a Navy officer. But after he served his three years, uh, China Lake hired him back. And so we went back and we lived on this Navy base, I would say up until I was about a sophomore in high school. Um, so it was, a, it was a very unique, just divert a little bit, it was a very unique situation to grow up in because it was uh, very protected. It was like maybe the original gated community. Uh, literally, there was a front gate, you know, with guards, you know, manning the, the gate, and you had to show a pass to get in. And, and it was a period of time that was kind of free and easy for a lot of people, and especially living on the base. Our parents never had to worry about us when we went outside. And so it wasn't uncommon for us to take off, you know, either after school or on the weekends in the morning. And my, our parents would have no idea where we were. We were off out in the desert chasing lizards or, or doing something crazy. You know, that's, that's kind of the life that I lived when I was young and growing up. You know, it was a self-contained community, but it was uh, kind of closed off from the rest of the world in a lot of ways. So uh, this, the school music program in that area uh, was very strong. Had a had an excellent kind of beginning band teacher who also uh, was the junior high school band director, and that program uh, fed into an excellent high school program. The, the surrounding community of Ridgecrest um, also had a program. It was a little bit smaller, but an equally talented woman who ran the band program out there. So the one of the unique things about living in that area is that. It's basically, it was a science, it was a big laboratory, basically. And I think probably the ratio of professional people, you know, PhDs and scientists and people like my father, engineers and so on, you know, it was, um, it was a community that, of highly educated people who appreciated the arts. And so they, they very much um, supported that and they, they started, you know, a community theater group and it was very active in that way. So very unusual for an isolated community out in the middle of nowhere to, uh, to be so connected to the arts. So I was very lucky in that way. But in fifth grade, I found myself in this lunchroom along with my parents and I think I had my heart set on playing drums, but somehow uh, I ended up taking a trumpet away from me, uh, you know, home with me. And uh, I don't know if that was uh, some kind of, of negotiated thing my parents had with the music teacher. Uh, her name was Alberta Klein, you know, just a wonderful person. But that's how I, I ended up with it. And as it turns out, trumpet was a very easy thing for me to play. I didn't struggle producing a good sound. And, you know, it, that was turned out to be kind of a good and bad thing for me uh, because I never really had to work at it. I, I never had to uh, be disciplined to sit down and try to figure things out, which is fine when you're up into high school and even a little bit into college. But at some point, hard work will definitely overcome natural talent. But that's how I started. You know, I played in band primarily, small groups, you know, brass choirs, um, things like that. I started playing in the local community orchestra. I played first trumpet in that. I won a solo ensemble competition with the local community orchestra, and I played the Haydn trumpet concerto. Uh, my first go at the Haydn was when I was in eighth grade, and uh, I was getting ready for a solo competition, and so my music teacher was putting me 
out in front of audiences as often as possible. So she thought it would be a good idea for me to be a part of the school talent show. <laughs> this will really date me, but there was a, there was a very uh, popular uh, rock and roll song by Iron Butterfly called Indigata Devita. It has a very famous drum solo in it. And of course, my friends were playing in that band. So they played first, playing Indigata Devita, and then I came on to play the Haydn Trumpet Concerto. It was, you know, it was, um, I don't know, ironic. Uh, <laughs> but somehow I survived, and, you know, that was, if I could survive that, I guess I could survive, you know, any other situation. So, so that's kind of how it started. Like when, once you finished school and you were looking at schools, mm-hmm. was USC just the likely choice because of the proximity to where you live? There was, a, I, for two years, I went to Bakersfield College, which, which was a two-year community college. And to be honest with you, uh, when I got out of school, I was a little disillusioned with, with music. The only thing that I could see um, as a possibility was being a band director, and that really wasn't that interesting to me. So I was thinking about history, you know, as, as maybe something I wanted to go into. So I thought it was probably a good idea before getting into um, a heavy-duty school in a certain direction until I got a little, a little of that figured out. So I went to Bakersfield College, and it, as it turns out, that was um, kind of pivotal um, in a lot of ways for me, because I did figure it out. They had a, a really great program, music program there. And I was introduced to a lot of things that I opened up my world. So, you know, from singing the choir, I played in every ensemble there, from the orchestra to the jazz band to you, know, you name it, I was playing in it. It introduced me to my first big time classical trumpet player. And I didn't know this at the time. But um, Charles Brady, he, uh, he was Tom Stevens' roommate at USC. And Tom, uh, later on, when Tom and I uh, began our relationship and friendship, um, he would often talk about uh, Charles Brady and how, what a fantastic player he was. He talked about his technique and his accuracy and his musicianship and his single time was so fast and and chuck had gone off to become principal trumpet of the national symphony i'm not sure what the story was that caused him to leave but somehow he ended up back in bakersfield so uh, fast forward to when i was there i was playing in uh, in the opera uh, at any rate i played second trumpet to him and uh, it was magic flute had an incredible experience um, playing next to him, got to know him. My first experience playing C trumpet was using his. You know, I, it, was, it was kind of a strange situation. I was pretty fearless uh, about playing anything, not out of self-confidence, but just because I, I didn't know any better. Off I went to, to USC. Uh, actually, before that, I, I, I knew that I wanted to go to USC. I was introduced to the school through my, my composition teacher, my music theory teacher. Howard Quilling was his name, and he, um, he went to USC. And we got all the stories. I mean, it was easy to go into his class, and he was a very eccentric guy. And we could get, we knew all of his hot buttons, so we could get him off on a topic in a heartbeat, and we did often, and he would tell stories about um, USC. And so 
there were several of us in that class who decided that's where we wanted to go. So to up my chances of getting into the school, I decided I should, I should start studying trumpet with one of the trumpet professors there. And uh, Walter Larson was one, uh, John Kleinman was the other. And I, I chose uh, Walter, contacted him, he accepted me as a student, and I used to drive down to his studio uh, in Pasadena. So he was, a, he was an old school teacher, you know, connected to the heart of, of American kind of trumpet playing, actually cornet playing, because um, he was a student of Herbert L. Clark. Uh, and so I got that very traditional kind of old school upbringing through him, or exposure to that through him. Malcolm McNabb also um, studied with, um, with Walt. And so I began, USC was accepted and studied with, with Walter. Something happened in the school where Walt decided um, he was done with teaching and he left and that opened up a position. That's when the school brought in Tom Stevens. And that audition went in and I played, and I, I think I did okay. But honestly, I think that one of the main reasons uh, that Tom accepted me and anybody who knows him, you know, can, could understand this, is that as soon as he found out that I was um, a valley rat, as he, he called himself and me and anybody else who was out in the San Joaquin Valley, and that I had had played with Chuck Brady, I was in, like, you know, that was it. There was, I, I probably could have played whole tones and you would have, you know, taken me in, into the studio. But that was, um, that's how I got there. And, oh boy, what a fortunate happenstance for me for that to happen. When you went in, the transition was right as you were coming in, like from, for, for Tom no, Sire? No, uh, that was, I studied with, with Walt at the school probably for a year, maybe, a, maybe about a year. It was, I think it was a year because um, when Tom came in, he attracted a whole lot of people. And Charlie Butler, who had just, uh, I think he had graduated, got his undergrad degree from um, Northwestern. And a, and a trombone player, a friend of his, who also graduated from there, Mark Donatel, um, came to USC. And um, Charlie and I ended up being roommates. Um, but uh, that probably was the second year in to USC for me. Why don't you tell me a little bit about the, you know, relationship you forged with Tom? Because that was pretty unique for Tom. You know, firstly, Tom didn't like teaching trumpet. <laughs> And as, as you full well know, you know, at, towards the end of his life, that re really changed when he realized that there were certain concepts that were not being taught, and he, he felt it was important for them not to be lost. And so the Vacchiano rules and, and all of those things, um, you know, that, where he had made projects out of them. But uh, because at that point in time, he was not interested in teaching trumpet per se, that's when he introduced me to Jimmy Stamp. And so, you know, for uh, a period of a couple of years, uh, maybe more, I studied with both of them at the same time. I, um, I don't know if you can see this. It's, uh, it's a check I wrote for one of my lessons with Jimmy that I happened to find. It was, 
it was $20. That's amazing. Back in the day. Amazing. So I, I say with both of them, and I study with him at school, and I would also go up to his house uh, up at the very top of Mulholland, and I would study there too. And, you know, the thing that was unique about him was he treated his students like colleagues uh, almost. I mean, he was very... He was very honest in his feedback and kind of famously so uh, at, at some point in uh, time, you know, the rumors probably grew larger than reality. But, you know, if you didn't play well, he would let you know. And, you know, you get into it with him as to why that wasn't happening. But if, if you did, you know, get it and play something well, he would equally let you know that, you know, you were, you were doing well in that way. Despite the fact that he did teach trumpet, you know, his focus was really on the music and using uh, music theory and applying that to, you know, to trumpet. He was very much a, uh, you know, a student of um, strings and string practice and their approach to music. You know, all of the things that, that he taught at Chosen Vale, for instance, you know, um, it wasn't just talk for him. He used that in, in, his, uh, in his work uh, as a musician. And, and it, it, for, it forever changed me. Uh, it changed the way I listen to music. I don't listen to music in the same way anymore. I'm much more aware of, of things that I would never have been aware of um, had I not had that experience with him feminine and masculine cadences and passing tones and, you know, how to shape a phrase based on, on you know, how music works and, and, you know, music theory, the art of music theory in, in many ways. But as a trumpet player, I think I, I improved more than at any other point in time in my life. And I look back on that and I think, you know, um, isn't that a testament to to focusing on what you want to do and letting uh, that carry you through to do what you need to do in order to achieve, you know, what you're trying to do. And so it was an incredible experience for me as a young trumpet player. And the reality of, of getting to know one of the m most accomplished uh, trumpet players, you know, in the world at that time, especially. I remember um, going up to his house one time for a lesson. And just before I said knock on the door, he, I could hear him in there and he was, he was playing and he was playing these Bach etudes. And so in, these were some of the same things that he would give us to play as well. So just before I was, I was to knock on the door, he cacked big time on something. I mean, it was, you know, it was, so I figured I should probably not knock then. <laughs> So that in itself was a lesson because I got to listen how he then went back and he worked through all of that. He was an, a, as authentic a person and what you see is what you got um, person as you could, you could imagine. And, you know, as we became friends, and I know this is a case with, uh, with others who got to know him, you know, that sort of persona, that public persona that so many people have of him being, you know, this grumpy old guy and kind of hard and, and so on, couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, he had, uh, he had a heart bigger than anybody that I knew and really cared for, um, for the people that he worked with, uh, his students. 
So um, I, I benefited from that. Yeah, had I not crossed paths with him and he said, yes, come into my studio, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I mean, he's, you know, if, if I had to pick all of the people in my life that, that were most influential uh, to get me to where I am today, it's, pro it's him. You know, there was the cross-section of him and Larry Minnick, you know, who I, where I learned the craft of working with musical instruments and the timing of those two relationships coming together. Uh, my first music teachers and all the other people that I came up with, but Tom, uh, Tom it was, um, you know, I am so fortunate that, you know, that our paths crossed, you know. You had a pretty, like, you had a friendship with Tom, which is also pretty rare in some ways. He was a very defensive man about his private life. But what it, what it seems to be the constant to me, based on what little time I spent with him, was that he enjoyed the company of people that were crazy smart or very, very connected to higher elements of the music industry. He wasn't hanging out with the basic folk, in other words. If you, I mean, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but what, what was it that you think he saw in what you were trying to do, both as a trumpet student and then later that, you know, made him so excited about you? Because he was always so excited about you. Well, I think um, maybe as a, as a young trumpet player, when I walked through the door, he could really sense my kind of naivety. I, I hadn't, and maybe this is a result of me having grown up out in the middle of nowhere, but I, I, uh, I wasn't influenced you know, by the Borg, so to speak, you know. I mean, my joy in music was playing the trumpet, and it, it wasn't, you know, necessarily sitting down, you know, getting overly concerned with, uh, with technique as a, as a primary goal, you know. It was always focusing on the music. Uh, and to be honest with you, I never knew trumpet playing was supposed to be hard until I went to USC and I started seeing all these, you know, all my fellow students walking around with their, their quad cases filled with all the keyed trumpets. And I didn't have that, you know, I mean, you know, I, and maybe, so maybe that's partly what he saw is that I, I hadn't been infected by all this other stuff and that, um, the wonder of music was still very much alive in me. And, uh, and so I was very open to experiencing the things that he would share with me. Uh, and then later as I got into um, the design part of trumpets, and that started with repair, uh, and I discovered I had a knack for that, you know, that sort of curiosity that I had that maybe looking back as my dad being an engineer, maybe there is some sort of engineering G DNA that was in my system. Um, you know, our friendship, you know, our trust in each other and, you know, him seeing uh, how my curiosity was manifesting itself into um, things that were really making um, an impact with improving trumpet performance. You know, later on, we connected, you know, very much in that way. And he was very responsible for um, introducing me to most of the world's top trumpet players. You know, my career would never have accelerated to the point where it did without him doing that. You know, so Pierre Thibault and Boone Nielsen and, you know, I mean, all of the, the big teachers 
at the time, and then all of the young guns that came up. You know, we can get into the story about how Hoken and I first met and Marcus Stockhausen, you know. I do want to hear about that because it's such a weird little moment in trumpet history that three people are living in an apartment that go on to have such an incredible impact on the trumpet world. Yeah, and it was Tom, you know, I mean, yeah, he was, uh, we were orbit, orbiting around him. You know, that's another example of kind of the power of who he was, and, you know. So, um, yeah, that was a great moment for sure. Ed had that talk with Hokan for the Tom uh, scholarship at Chosenvale, and Hokan mentioned his visit to LA and his time here and, it was very funny hearing about how that came about, but how was it on your end to like meet this guy for the first time and Marcus and what was all of that like? You know, the other part of the story is that uh, Tom called me and he said, Hey, there are these two European trumpet players, you know, who want to come to LA and study with me. Would you do you have room in your place? Can you host them while they're here in LA? And I had no idea who they were at the time. And I said, absolutely, sure. And I was living out in Alhambra at the time, you know, like uh, right next to, you know, across the street, and you're in South Pasadena one way, and you're in uh, San Marino, you know, the other way. It was, you know, a pretty nice neighborhood. But it was a small little bungalow. There were like five of these little bungalows in this thing, and I was in one of them. So within the same month, I think Marcus came first, got, here, got there first. But both of them had, you know, graduated from their conservatories um, about the same time, and they were both coming to study with Tom for the same reason, I think. And, and so um, I had Marcus and then Hoken come. And that was uh, an amazing period of time. I would go into work every day. I was working at, at that point. I didn't have, officially have my own business per se. I was uh, still working for Larry Minnick out in West Los Angeles. Uh, but I would come home and we would play trios together you know, cook good meals, you know, the whole thing. I mean, if you know uh, both of them, Hoken in particular, the fellowship that comes from uh, and the appreciation that goes with, with, you know, cooking a good meal and enjoying, you know, uh, time together over a good glass of wine and things like that in the talks. And it went in late into the night. That was an incredible period of time. You know, a couple of funny stories that came out of that was uh, Hoken was was preparing to play his very first Brandenburg. I mean, this was a big gig that he was getting ready to play. Um, you'd have to ask him where it was. I can't remember where it was. But at any rate, he probably played, you know, from upper left corner to, to the end of the Brandenburg 20 times, 30 times, you know, during the day. There was so much trumpet playing going on between the two of them and then when I would come home that my neighbors thought I was, uh, had started music school and they called the police. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that was an interesting thing. And the other kind of side note, not trumpet related, is that uh, both Hoken and I are uh, pretty infatuated by cars. 
and I had I happened to have a 1959 Corvette, and this was basically four wheels, a steering wheel, and a big motor. And I, I took him out um, on the Pasadena freeway, and I scared the crap out of him. And so he vowed to get me back. Uh, so for years, I think he went on the hunt of the perfect weapon, and he finally found it. He didn't tell me until I was at his house one day out in the countryside of Sweden. And he said, would you like to go for a ride? <laughs> I said, sure, bring it on. And we went out to, this, uh, to his garage, and he pulls back the, the tarp, and underneath it is an MG. And I'm thinking, oh, no big deal. It, it was a right-hand drive MG. Uh, this was an MG that had a six-cylinder motor in it, though. The top was down, and the windshield only came up to a certain point. He starts it up, and I can clearly hear there's something different about this car. And we start down the road uh, from him. And of course, out in the countryside, these little villages, the houses are built like right on the road, right? And uh, I'm sitting in the, in the left seat, you know, and, uh, and we're going down, down the road. And I'm, the orientation is completely off for me, you know, for one. But we are blasting by these houses. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, if somebody comes out to do anything we're all dead we're all gonna die <laughs> uh, because the windshield was low and it probably accentuated the, the sensation of speed because the wind was hitting you in the face and you know <laughs> he had his baseball cap on backwards and i mean the whole thing that started that sort of um, goal to scare each other with with our cars started back in pasadena <laughs> that's amazing i love that i'd never heard that story it fits both of your personalities very yeah, well. Yeah, and I think we're both getting older, so the, uh, probably the need to uh, do that to each other is a little bit lessened now. I just remembered, uh, you remember when Tom brought his friend to Chosenville in 2016 who had a Porsche? Remember he, I don't know if you were there yet, but he brought his Porsche, but he was like 90. Uh -huh. And uh, Hokan said he had the scariest ride back to the hotel he's ever had in his life. Uh-huh because he gave him a drive home and he really didn't know if he was going to make it home. Or uh -huh. <laughs> he said it was very slow, but just based on the quality of the uh -huh. steering. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, that's incredible. And then you obviously have a very, very amazing relationship with him as well. And I know, I know with his son, with Martin and, and all the others. Yeah, we, um, you know, I, I often refer to him as my brother from a different mother. Uh, you know, we really, our careers grew up together. Um, he was so gracious to um, get behind what I was doing. You know, the first album cover, you know, that showed a little bit of my work was his very first CD. And, you know, and he, he uh, graciously gave me uh, credit on, on his albums. Um, and that certainly, you know, helped me and help other people get to know me through his incredible um, playing and musicianship. Let's go back to you graduating USC. And I know that you worked for the Disneyland band, like so many people that have just graduated USC and all that. Tell me a little bit about like your playing career out of school and how that migrated into your interest for, you know, design and, and everything else. Um, again, and you'll, you'll, 
start to put together that this career was definitely not a planned thing for me. So uh, when I got out of school as a young trumpet player trying to make a living, as so many do uh, in Los Angeles as a young freelance player, taking whatever jobs I could, um, I needed another part-time job to help pay the bills. And it just so happened that one of my roommates at the time had a job working for Larry Minnick and his shop out in West Los Angeles. Uh, and Larry was a very highly regarded uh, brass technician designer. He, um, he had a reputation of being a, a curmudgeon himself. And uh, somehow my roommate convinced Larry to take me on. I had no experience whatsoever. Um, and literally it was one of those stories where I, you know, one of my jobs was sweeping the, you know, the shop floor. Uh, it was a, you know, it was a mentorship uh, in a very old school kind of way. So, you know, he would show me how to remove dents or how to do this or how to do that. And, you know, give me things to work on where, you know, it wasn't uh, too dangerous for the person <laughs> whose instrument it was or whatever. Uh, I did a lot of cleaning out of horns and things like that. But, you know, because I was still, my goal was, was to establish a career playing. As my skill level got greater and I could try things, I had ideas of things I wanted to try to, in changing my horn to make it easier for me to play, and particularly sea trumpets. You know, the, the sea trumpets of, the, of my generation in that point in time um, the big modifications were to put a B-flat tuning slide, you know, on a, on a Bach trumpet or Schilke box where that conversion was big. And Tom, you know, Tom had one of those. So that's, that's when my sort of quest, when I started zeroing in on lead pipes as, you know, a path to improvement, um, that's when that, that all started. But I, uh, I continued to play, and, and I think I started with Larry uh, maybe in 1978, maybe 77, somewhere in that time frame, uh, and then roll through 1980, uh, which happened to be the 25th anniversary of Disneyland. And one of my other roommates uh, somehow was connected. I think he had played in the Disney All-American College Band and had made some good friendships with some of the, the people who managed uh, in the entertainment division out there. And they, for that Christmas in 1980, they decided to bring uh, back the Fanfare Trumpet Group. You know, there was no audition or anything. It was all an invitation-based thing. So they, they put this uh, group of young players together and it was, it was a real mashup of, you know, I was very hardcore classical player, you know, playing, you know, big mouthpieces and, you know, typical classic setup with um, a number of players who came out of Cal State Long Beach that were very much the opposite commercial players, you know, playing lightweight trumpets and bench trumpets and Claude Gordon trumpets and, um, shallow mouthpieces and, and, and all of that. And they put us together. And two, uh, two brothers, Stan Martin and Andy Martin, who played trumpet. I had no idea at the time that Andy even played trombone. 
And Andy is, of course, one of the premier uh, jazz uh, trombonists in the world. But that year we, we played together um, in, a, in the Stanford Trump, Trumpet Unit. But uh, the funny story that goes with that is um, they, what they had in mind for us was to play in these toy soldier costumes. And so we did all of our rehearsing and there was choreography and all this stuff that went along with it. It was counter marches and we're playing these fanfare trumpets and all that. And so we go to do a dress rehearsal finally for the first time in these outfits. And if you can imagine, you know, you've seen the fanfare uh, of the toy soldiers, right? There are these big bulbous heads that you, Put over you you have these little slits covered with mesh so you can kind of see out but it's sort of like um you've seen the movie being john malkovich okay it's that experience right and then you had a little hole and you had this long lead pipe with the mouthpiece on it you had to kind of stick it through the hole but you had no peripheral vision really uh and so they had us uh do uh do this um performance it, at midnight for a private party as our dress rehearsal and it was a total disaster and I really wish I could have seen the video if they took video because people were crashing into each other I mean it was it was a comedy that you could not have scripted any better it was hilarious the very next day they sent us off to wardrobe and we they outfitted us with these uh, with these other renaissance costumes uh, and we never went back to the toy soldier group they did bring that back with, uh, with some others, but we, uh, we got to you know, be in these Renaissance costumes at that point. And it went over so well that they decided uh, that the Fanfare Trumpet Group should head off the 25th anniversary parade. And so I worked full-time out at Disneyland playing in that parade and uh, we did two parades and then we did, I think, five sets, five or six sets um, in the park during the daytime. Uh, so between working at Larry Minix in the park, I worked seven days a week for a year. And I would, you know, leave Larry's, you know, in time to get out to, you know, change into my costume and do the first parade and all that. But that's, that's where I met uh, a lot of, of the working musicians in Los Angeles, some known, well-known, and some not uh, so well-known, but great players. Uh, that's where Wayne Bergeron and I met each other. So I can, I can say that uh, I have seen Wayne Bergeron, as he has seen me, uh, put on purple tights. Uh, <laughs> yes, the things we do to make money in the music business as trumpet players. I've been meaning to make a table book of famous trumpet players in Renaissance garb because I know at least the, I know at least 20 or yeah, 30. Well, anyway, that was that was a great experience and uh, you know, that's that's my my Disney story. I played off and on at Disneyland um, mostly seasonally until um, 1987, which is when I made the decision to stop trying to pursue um, uh, a performance career. It was kind of a, a little bit of a slow uh, process into that decision, but um, what was happening was I was, I had so much work um, coming my way in the shop. And, and by that point in time, I developed these lead pipes, uh, a lot of them and um, other modifications to go with it that 
all I was thinking about when I was out playing a job was, you know, wanting to be back in the shop and wanting to, you know, to work on horns. And, and I decided, you know, uh, let's look at the obvious here. You've stumbled into a job or a career that you enjoy, you're good at, uh, and you'll probably make a better impact on music and the trumpet community than being a freelance player. Yeah, you know, maybe an okay freelance player, but a freelance player. I had that choice and I made the decision and, you know, maxed out my credit cards. And that was, that was a time when Larry decided he was going to semi-retire and close his shop down. So it kind of forced me into, you know, that decision in some ways. Um, in 1983 is when I actually started Bob Malone's Brass Technology, but Larry, I was still in Larry's shop, um, kind of renting his shop space and, and machines um, and playing and doing all of that. Uh, but in 87, when he decided to leave, I needed to really make a decision and I did that. And, you know, that's when I was really on my own. Did you, at the, I mean, did you basically quit cold turkey and <laughs> also give up the trumpet playing at the same time? Or, or for a while, did you keep that you going? No, I, I kept going uh, for a while. And I would, but I, I stopped, you know, I stopped proactively looking for jobs. My friends would still call me to come and play uh, different things. Um, I did, uh, I did a lot of fanfare gigs, uh, with, you know, that fanfare group was kind of famous. And one of my good friends, um, Owen Kirshner, outside of the park, started his own fanfare group, Fanfares d'Elegance. And, and so he ended up producing a lot of events using fanfare trumpets. So I, I did a lot of those for him. Um, Disney would send us out, you know, to do, uh, do things um, prior to 87 when I, I stopped. But I, that was the last year for me playing at Disney. Um, and then it just sort of tapered off from there. And I um, got away from playing the trumpet. You know, I was more focused on listening and growing my ears and being able to react to what I heard in order to help somebody get, achieve what they wanted to achieve. I mean, I had never talked to you about this, but I think it's super interesting that everyone I've talked to, Gould and Ed and burns and everyone else they always talk about the most important thing in the arts being having an impact it doesn't really matter what that means as long as you're advancing your community forward and i think it's very cool what you said about thinking that you could have a huge impact on your community through designing instruments that could improve our lives more so than you know freelancing in los angeles well i i felt like i could have more of an impact you know, I think that I think that uh, music and musicians provide something to people that that we need as as human beings, and uh, and so everyone's work, whether it's a freelance player, or somebody's you know playing in an orchestra someplace, you know what you're doing is providing that that opportunity, you know, for others, and and that's important. I just felt like I could, you know, I could make it maybe a unique contribution and impact. And, and at that point, I mean, it, it had really consumed me. That was a passion that I had and it was all consuming. And, you know, I really had no choice. Uh, you know, 
I mean, it must have been scary and brutal to to take on that challenge, right? Well, um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, again, kind of keeping my theme of being naive with all of this. Um, if somebody had sat me down and said, okay, you decided to do this. This is, this is what this means to you financially. This is, these are the challenge you're going to face. This is blah, blah, blah. These are the possibilities. You know, that, that aspect is scary. So kind of going into it, not being aware of it so much. And again, it's, you know, tying it back to that period of time and in, in studying with Tom and how my trumpet playing had, had improved so much by focusing on what the goal was and what the passion was and, you know, the performance. Um, in a way, it has a parallel to what I did there as, as well. I wasn't being as concerned about the mechanics of running a business per se as I was about the passion of designing something that would be an incredible tool of communication, musical communication. And, and that really helped carry me through, the, you know, the hard times. So, you know, fortunately, my wife, Lorraine, uh, had, had a, a very good job. And as I said, we did max credit cards out to buy tools that I needed. And, you know, we sweated bullets over some machines that I bought. And, um, and then I had some, um, some, other, some other people who believed in what I was doing and it was, were willing to help me. Uh, there was a man, he was an engineer, an aerospace engineer named Ted Savo, who loved trumpet. And so he bought some things for me uh, to help me get started. Tom would help me. The thing about Tom, you know, was he would do it in a very um, kind of stealthy way, you know, he would come in and, and see I had some horns that I was trying to sell. And then he would buy them. He said, he'd come and say, Oh, I know somebody, you know, in Europe, you know, who's interested, would you sell me this trumpet? You know? And I, I, I suspect in a lot of cases, maybe that wasn't so true, but it was an opportunity for him to, you know, to su support me in a way without it um, looking like I was getting charity from him. I was really blessed uh, to have people in my life who, who um, saw something in what I was doing and uh, felt it was worth, you know, helping me stay afloat. Uh, so that's, um, I guess that's how I got through that. <clears throat> it's, it's really cool uh, now that I've been like traveling to Sweden more and, you know, in my time in Europe, you would run into your horns from the before Yamaha and it was always really great because it was like oh where'd you get that horn and it's like oh Boo Nielsen sold this to me it was for me it was thrilling to run into your instruments from my mentors uh through through my particularly through my college years you know like Ed had his and it was so unique and when did it really start hitting off for you though that that this you know, your design was starting to take over the professional circle. Well, I mean, it was really literally, um, I didn't do any advertising at all. It was all word of mouth. And it was always, um, you know, I was always in the moment of working on a horn for a particular person and doing my best to be sure that uh, that person had something, you know, that, um, they, that they wanted, you know, that they felt was a good choice for them, you know, as a musical voice. And, 
you know, it was really kind of, it grew at, at a point, it started to grow exponentially because there were enough people out there that were happy with, with what I was doing and they were letting people try their, you know, their horns and telling people about it. And, and Holkin and some others who were growing audiences and fans, uh, you know, uh, were very helpful. Um, Tom, you know, continued to do that for me. I've, I've happened to, my, my, we're selling my mother's house and moved her up with my sister. And so we were cleaning out the house and I ran across a whole bunch of, of old uh, vinyl records that uh, I, I thought I had pulled everything out of there, but I, there was this last batch. And within that batch was, was this. Uh, which is uh, the, the Th Thomas Stevens Zeta Carno piano, uh, the Antiel Sonata, Peter Maxwell Davies Sonata, Leonard Bernstein, Rondo for Life. He, uh, that's his new car Tom's new Carnival of Venice and variations on Clifford Intervals. That uh, that you know that re record album, and you know he gave me credit on on that. That one actually was has a great story behind it because. Um, that's when I designed that S, you know, shaped pipe. And um, again, this was sort of back in the day when I was playing and Larry Minnick was, I was still renting space from him. And Larry had this Mount Vernon C trumpet. It was a medium bore C trumpet with a gold brass uh, 236 bell, very unusual combination. And it was virtually brand new. I mean, it looked like it had never been played. And I bought it for $500 and I soon found out why it had never been played because as a C trumpet, it was, uh, it was tight and it just, you know, it was not, um, it was not interesting to play at all. So I, th but I did think that maybe it would make a good D trumpet. And so I kind of played with the puzzle of how could I get it, you know, cut it down uh, to get it to play in the key of D and yet hedge my bets, not cut the bell so that if I wanted to put it back in, you know, this Mount Vernon trumpet back into the key of C, the original thing, I could do that. So I figured out a way to do it. And that way to do it was that S-shaped pipe. And the more I got into it, the more um, it started to make a lot of sense to me because, you know, as you know, as you start going up in pitch and the lead pipe tapers start getting smaller and smaller or shorter and shorter, uh, you know, more and more intonation issues start to pop up and, and other things. Uh, and I ended up with a lead pipe that was actually longer than um, a B-flat length pipe, and yet I could get the, the trumpet to play in the key of D. So I, I just literally finished putting this thing together. And I think I had played it a little bit when Tom walked through the door and he said, what's that? And I said, here, you know, try it. And, uh, and he did, and he didn't put it down. And he said, I'm taking this trumpet with me. And he played it. He, that's the horn he used on the Peter Maxwell Davies Sonata. So that was, that was quite a, quite a day, but, um, yeah, but anyway, the you know him helping me you know, with put the word out in Hokan and you know other people like Ole Edward Antonsen and so many young players at the time who were just establishing their careers that are now just huge, hugely successful in, in doing what they're doing. I think what's interesting about your designs is exactly the story you just told. Um, I've always found that 
you know, consistently what I've played that you've made from the different eras I've played them, you always design, it seems like, to solve a problem and not to generate a gimmick. I, I've never seen you kind of design anything from the point of view of trying to reinvent the trumpet itself, but rather, you know, how can I, like you just said with a D trumpet, how do I make this into a D trumpet without destroying this trumpet? I mean, that's such a pragmatic way of looking at, at trumpet design. And what I find with your trumpets, and they keep getting better and better, is they also are kind of simple. Like, it's easy to explain why your lead pipe for example, works so well. You found a way to brace a reverse lead pipe. That's essentially it. I mean, sounds stupid when I say it because 2020 hindsight, right? But uh, it's amazing to me that a lot of it comes just stems from your innate curiosity of doing these things. And I love that. Yeah, that I, you know, just uh, not being able to keep my hands off of something and wondering what would, what, what if, you know, what if we tried this or what if we tried that? Just, you know, growing, um, growing as a player, I think uh, all the years that I did spend, you know, trying to play the trumpet and become a better musician, I think that that was, I think, part of the reason why I've been successful. And I'm, I can relate to someone who's, you know, been sequestered in a practice room for hours and hours playing, you know, Charlie A. Etudes, you know, with Hogan, who's doing all those beautiful recordings right now. I, I, I understand the trials and tribulations, you know, there are, everyone has their own unique challenges, you know, within any musical instrument, but there are some universal things that are very common you know, with trumpet players and brass players. And I think that helped me. That's, that's who I was. So it, it, it was, I was relatable in that, you know, in that aspect. Um, and I think that helped me on the design side. Looking back, are you still sort of shocked that you got a call and ended up at Yamaha after being such a meticulous scientist in your own bubble, designing these instruments for people? Well, I mean, my relationship with Yamaha, I mean, when I, before, you know, actually shutting down Bob Malone's Brass Technology and joining as an employee of Yamaha Corporation of America, um, I had a relationship with Yamaha. And you know, it goes back to meeting Kenzo Kawasaki, you know, for the first time. And, and that was well, um, that was years ahead of when I, I joined Yamaha. When uh, Kenzo Kawasaki and Toshi Kamiyama and Hiro Okabe, you know, came to the U.S. with uh, the very first um, Zeno, tr you know, what would become the Zeno trumpet prototypes of C trumpets. They were called heavy wall trumpets, you know, uh, at the beginning, which was the very first departure away from the Shilke influence. Um, you know, Shilke had been an advisor for Yamaha for, for quite some time, and that was reflected very much in, in the trumpets that they were making. When they came to bring those prototypes and they came through Los Angeles and uh, met with Tom, um, they later go on to other parts of the country and in Boston in particular with Gitala. Uh, but that's, that's when Yamaha really first kind of entered into my consciousness. Uh, and again, through Tom, I think Kenzo became more and more aware of what I was doing. And as Yamaha was so passionate about building a, a great trumpet, 
you know, they started paying attention to, to what I was doing. So they're very aware of some of the things, my modifications and other things uh, that I was doing. And actually, um, in 19, uh, we started this in 1987, uh, when Kenzo approached me and said, uh, would you be willing to uh, join Yamaha in a, on a project? And I said, sure. Uh, and that was working with Kenzo and Bobby Shu to design the, the 6310Z. Um, at the time, we started off uh, with my shop in West Los Angeles. And then we, uh, we ended with when I moved to Van Nuys and I moved into a bigger space. But that, that was my first, um, you know, official project with Yamaha that turned it out, you know, turned into a production horn. Or earlier than that, Kenzo had asked me to help create a sea trumpet for Hulken, a Yamaha sea trumpet. And Hulken was playing at the Hollywood Bowl, first, you know, first appearance with the LA Philharmonic at the Hollywood Bowl in the summer. And I came a few days early and we worked on a sea trumpet together. And actually we did create a really good sea trumpet. It was, it was raw brass, it was beautiful, played well. And we sent it off to the platers and to get it gold plated. And the plating just absolutely killed it. <laughs> so that, that was unfortunate. But, you know, so long story short, my, my relationship with Yamaha really built over time with, with different projects. Uh, at the same time that I started working on the 6310Z project, I became a Yamaha dealer. And so I was now introduced to the business side of Yamaha. And, you know, as a a brass specialty uh, dealer. And, uh, and so that, you know, that carried on through, you know, to when I, I shut my shop down. Uh, the story about me coming to Yamaha is, is one that really starts with, with Yamaha's, one of Yamaha's major competitors uh, with Bach, you know, getting a call, um, kind of exploring the possibilities of whether or not I might be interested in to come work with them and, and of course, you know, I mean, I'm open to possibilities and we started down that path and several trips into Elkhart and meeting with different people. Um, but the, the turning point, what happened in, it was ITG of 2000. And I, I had not gotten into my hotel room for more than maybe five minutes before the telephone rang and it was the general manager of the band and orchestral division for Yamaha, Mike Bennett uh, at the time, who said, I understand that, you know, someone is interested in hiring you. I hope you haven't made the decision. Would you, would you meet with us? And so he had sent his assistant general manager there and we had dinner that night and um, it just, you know, for me, it was the right choice. I, I'd worked with so many of those people and my values and Yamaha's values lined up perfectly. The passion for, you know, for design and improvement and, you know, it was, uh, it was just, a, it was the right thing for me to do. So I made the choice and um, I hoped for the best and it could not have turned out any better. Uh, really, it was um, all of my hopes uh, were realized uh, and more, I would say. 
I remember in 2004 or five when the first Gen 1s arrived in Colombia. And, you know, I think that Southern Europe and Latin America have been kind of holdout countries for such a long time in uh, what instruments they buy or don't buy. It's been so interesting for me to watch that shift where slowly everywhere in the world somebody's holding your design. And how has that been kind of, you know, because you've talked about how you were so focused on just working with individual people and the people I've talked to about that, you were just working on making great instruments. You weren't trying to like, you know, make Bob Malone trumpets, you know, mass product produced or anything. You, you were kind of such an artisan focused on your work. How much of a trip is it for you now to like still have that because you're designing these amazing instruments, but now having a company that can produce them for you and that we're all kind of holding this amazing instrument now? Firstly, what joining Yamaha gave me were possibilities that I could never have had, never have explored on my own. You know, Yamaha is is a is a big company, as everybody knows. Um, and it's kind of ironic because, you know, Yamaha is a big company and it makes a lot of different kinds of things. And sometimes it gets caught up in, um, you know, our perception that it's this, you know, it's sort of this big faceless thing where, you know, it's just ma mass producing everything and there's nothing special about it at all. Um, which is not true because within the, you know, within Yamaha, if you go behind the curtains, it's, um, it's a series of areas of the company that are populated by passionate people who are building in essence, boutique products, you know? So joining Yamaha gave me access to resources and, and people with knowledge and um, skills that I could never have had access to. And so the, you know, these, my journey with Yamaha is um, not that I, you know, here's Bob Malone arriving to save the day. It wasn't that at all. It was joining um, a line of passionate designers like Kenzo and Hiro, you know, um, the whole line of trumpet designers, um, you know, to partner with them. And it really, you know, really was a team effort. So, you know, partnering, when I first came uh, to Yamaha, uh, Hiro Amaoka was based here in the US and he was, you know, handling all the R&D duties um, uh, from him. And so, you know, my first work working relationship as an employee was actually working with Hiro. And then Shinichi Niwata, you know, the, the first trumpet designer that I worked with on the first generation um, Chicago. You know, and then eventually, you know, my partnership with my, my longest standing colleague, uh, Norihisa Fukuda, um, and then the other designers that came in with him, Katsuhiko Furumi, and now the, you know, the youngest designer, um, Kohei Wada. You know, focusing on Norihisa, for instance, you know, Nori and I very much thought alike. He was very open-minded, uh, very focused on you know, on solutions to achieve, you know, what we're trying to achieve. He had, he's an expert um, CAD designer. And so if we came up with an idea of a part, you know, it was very easy for him to do that. Now all, most of the designers can, you know, can generate those kinds of drawings. 
um, but he he is also an expert negotiator. So he w- kind of knew how to you know to get people on board with what we're doing. That did happen before. So you know the, a good example of that was with um, Shinichi. You know one of the one of the hallmarks of the artist's model trumpet design is the French style bell bead and. Uh, and Yamaha had never made one of those before. And we knew this was, this. we really needed to figure out how to do this uh, for ourselves. And so Shinichi had to kind of do the negotiating and fighting the battle behind the scenes to get people to try it. And how he and others, you know, kind of kept the fires burning through the learning curve is kind of amazing to me because I think the first 10 bells that they tried to make, you know, with this French style bell bead, eight of them failed. You know, the bell bead is kind of sharp and it cut through uh, the bell. So we ended up with two, you know, kind of usable bells out of the first 10. That's not a very good ratio. You know, I think a lot of other companies would have just said, it's just not possible to do it in production, but they kept after it. And there were some very creative people who did figure out a way to do it. And so that, that allowed us to move forward. You know, my, I'm, I am very fortunate to uh, have worked alongside incredibly talented people who are very much team oriented and working together. And then you, you marry that with the great artists that we've worked with. And how can you not do anything other than, you know, create success with that? Yeah, and it's great because now all of us are benefiting from those relationships and that kind of um, commitment to creativity and to excellence, which is, it's actually kind of rare in companies. The safe road is always the one taken, but it's never the one that leads to anything groundbreaking. No, and it's, you know, you can kind of see the history of that. When when Kenzo uh, and Hiro Kabe decided to divert away from you know, the, the Shilke, um influence. I mean, that was, that, was a, that was kind of a bitter breakup in some ways, um, you know, because it was so against the grain of the time. So that, you know, that passion of, of pursuit of excellence and, you know, and discovery uh, and experimentation and the company's belief and support of it is is amazing. And I can tell you from the top on down, I mean, that's one thing that I think really distinguishes Yamaha from other companies is the support for that kind of R&D effort uh, from the president of the company. I've been fortunate to uh, personally know uh, many of the, of the company presidents uh, at Yamaha and a couple of them have come through as presidents of Yamaha Corporation of America. Uh, And as I would be working on these projects, I would send them updates and pictures and they were very curious and very into it. So they knew, you know, in many cases, intimate details of what we were doing. And now, you know, the the president of Yamaha Corporation, Tak Nakata, who is a designer himself, who was president of Yamaha Corporation of America, has that, you know, he is a designer. He has that curiosity. He carries that passion and the will to overcome and all of the things that the Yamaha believes in. And that translates down into 
the designers. And that's another thing that's different about Yamaha is there is a design section. There are people who go into work, that's all they think about is, you know, we've got two trumpet designers. They come in, they think about trumpet design. That's their job, you know? It's not, it's not somebody who is pulled off of an assembly line or some other job, maybe a marketing person to design a new horn. That's their profession, that's what they do. Uh, and that kind of support um, enables you to do the opportunity to do, you know, really good things. And I, I think we've, you know, we've tried to honor the possibility with hard work and, and teamwork and partnership. And that's produced some really great, great things for us. Well, it's a testament to the fact that it's working. And maybe, maybe this is my impression. So maybe you can tell me I'm wrong. But year, every time a new design comes out, like and they come out in batches every couple of years. What I've noticed more and more is your horns are getting to a point where the theory that we all need a you know that a particular horn is good for a jazz career and a particular horn is good for an orchestral career is kind of dissipating quickly. I mean, even the the horn that I liked the most out of your lineup for a classical career right now was the Bobby Shoe out of all of them. Which is crazy. I mean, it's it's insane to think about that change in twenty years of design. It's it's a huge testament to what you're talking about. Just thinking it from the point of view of design instead of marketing or a small idea or something like that. I you know I learned I learned a while ago not to try to define something and put it in a box. You know, like uh, you're working on a trumpet with Bobby Shue, then this is a commercial trumpet or a jazz trumpet, and this is where it should be. If you design a good musical instrument, there are people of all different genres that are going to come to it and find that it works well for them. Um, so the, the key is designing a great musical instrument within the parameters, you know, of what you're, you know, you're trying to uh, um, to achieve, but yeah, you'll you'll be surprised uh, as to applications that people will come up with that you maybe hadn't even considered. Yeah, it's amazing, and I want to make a tiny shift just to finish our conversation up because I want to be mindful of your time. But the other part of you that all of us know is really cool about you, and I think it reveals a lot of how you view the world and also your sensibilities as an artist and as a person. How did you start getting into photography and all the other you know, hobbies that you have that you're so good at and, and passionate about? Obviously, you've told me that the cars are going on the side uh, now more and more, but you know, I've seen you get more and more into photography maybe as that other passion goes away a little bit. Well, you know, photography really has been a part of my life for since I was a child. And, um, and I think that came through my grandfather, my mother's father, who was a prolific uh, picture taker. I don't know that he would view himself as a photographer, but he always had a camera or a, you know, a movie camera or a still camera. And um, in fact, the very first camera that I took my own picture with was a family camera uh, that I, I inherited. But I probably started taking pictures using that camera when I was, you know, in fifth grade, sixth grade, something like that. I can't say that they were good pictures, but, you know, but that's, that's how that started. 
And then, you know, photography for me, especially since I was, wasn't playing trumpet, I wasn't performing any, anymore. Photography really has become my, my performance outlet, I guess is a, you know, a way to, to say it. And there are a lot of parallels, I feel, with photography and music. You know, a, a good photograph has, tells a story. You know, when you're playing, you're you know, telling a story. Um, composition, elements, you know, phrasing, shadow and light, color of sound, shadow and light in photographs. Um, there are so many things that are, are similar to that, you know, and I don't consciously look, look at it from that perspective, but if I step back and I look, I can, I can see that there, you know, there, um, there are a lot of similarities in a way. And so um, continuing to hone my craft, you know, as a, as an artist photographer, it has really helped to fill the you know the void when I stepped away from playing the trumpet, if that makes any sense. But yeah, it's um, it's it's a passion for me. It started way back when, and it hasn't dissipated at all. Yeah, I love I love seeing your pictures, especially when you're traveling. We we all really get off on that. <laughs> yeah, that became kind of my. Um, my photo from you know the airport uh, was sort of my out of office uh, notification. You know, oh Bob's on the road again. Maybe uh, <laughs> sending him an email. Well, he won't get to it right away. But uh... well, Bob, thank you so much, and thank you for telling you know all these stories about Tom. I know it's coming on two years, and yeah, I, I'll tell you what, I sure miss him. I um, you know I was uh, one thing I was I brought out here, and I know people can't see this, um, but it's. It's kind of, uh, it's um, something that I, it's a memento that I, I keep and I smile when I see it. But one day when he was in the shop uh, and the LA Philharmonic was auditioning for utility trumpet, which Boyd had uh, ended up winning, he, he wrote the uh, audition list on one of my uh, notes, notepads. And, uh, and I got it afterwards, but... Anyway, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I am so lucky to be doing what I'm doing and, and so fortunate to have uh, met and, and grown relationships with, with the people that I've met. And, uh, and I continue to meet, you know, you and, the, you know, the generation of trumpet players that are coming up and, you know, are, we're passing the torch to, you know, in a lot of ways. So I'm, I couldn't be happier. and feel so fortunate about that yeah and to, you know speaking at least for myself i feel very fortunate to have a connection with you guys and you know the very fortunate time that the ones of us that spent time with tom at chosen vale which was such a rarity yeah i think you know for me honestly a lot of uh these conversations and the type of people i'm trying to feature are the voices that kind of aren't loud because they don't need to be and the Ironically, those are the ones that can get lost easily. So it's been kind of weird for me to see Tom gone and sort of a lot of what he teaches is dissipating at a faster and faster rate. So I'm trying to see how we can all get together and keep it going. Yeah, well, I hope so. I, you know, his, um, you know, his uh, level of musicianship was world class all the way. His approach was in many ways old school. Um, but uh, every person who 
got into it, um, at some point in time, there was an epiphany that changed them, you know, forever. And I have no doubt that you and, and the others at Chosen Vale who had a chance to absorb some of that, you know, that's the legacy. I mean, you, you guys are the legacy that will carry that forward and, you know, ensure that that gets passed on to somebody else. Uh, that's the way it works, right? That's how the world works. Yeah, that's one of the fun things about the arts. So now it's time to move forward. <laughs> Bob, thank you so much for talking to me. I, uh, I'll let you know when I've edited this and when it's going to go up. And, you know, thanks for everything you do. And Thanks. Thanks, Rico. It was fun. Fun talking to you.